about what is possible for God to do in relationship to the human will, and they see one verse that suggests another possibility, and they say, this verse can't be that, can't mean that, or we'll take it right out of the Bible. So what we're going to do is begin with general statements about God's providence over the nations. General statements about God's providence, then we'll move to specific statements about God's providence over particular nations. And then I want to look at some uh, larger portions of Scripture rather than just isolated texts. And we'll wind up, I hope, or I'll get this illustration in here and others along the way about the impact upon missions today of God's providence over the nations. So what we'll do first is look at some individual texts and I'll pause here and there and see if you have any questions about these, but they're pretty straightforward and let them have their effect upon your worldview now. Because you won't read this in the newspaper. These, these are more important truths than are ever reported in the newspaper or on television, and yet you'll never hear these. It shows how tremendously skewed reality is in the way it's presented for most Americans. And since most Americans don't absorb the Bible from any source, they are constantly inundated by a skewed source of reality in uh, education and media and entertainment. Job 12:23. God makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then leads them away. This is a theme we're going to see over and over again of God being the one who, who brings nations into being, makes them great or large, and then removes them, takes them away. So God does that. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight. The kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. So the nations are not running willy-nilly outside the control of God. He's managing affairs. Psalm 33.10 The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So if you see a big council taking place and counsel coming from that council and it looks bleak and foreboding for the advance of the gospel like in Kazakhstan, a, a major law being passed that 40% of foreigners' foreign income will be paid to Kazakhstan's government and you say, oh dear. Well, God... God can nullify that when it ceases to have its appointed effect. He can just nullify that anytime he wants. Or if you see the Supreme Court send down a decision that seems to be unjustly restrictive upon certain speaking or acting, don't, oh dear, poor God, he took a setback. God can nullify anything he chooses to nullify in the council of the nations, and when their plans are formed, he can frustrate the plans. How many times have we seen actions uh, performed by nations which looked 
awful to us. I mean, for example, real obvious and easy examples is the the communization, the secularization of China for 40-plus years, thinking, oh, the missionaries are gone, we can't spread the gospel. And not only is the gospel growing spectacularly with two and a half Pentecosts a day during those 40, 50 years, but the old resistant religion is wiped out by communism. So that when the doors begin to reopen, it's a new enemy, and it's an enemy very, very susceptible to meaning and hope among young people. So what, what's God doing for 40 years of shutting things down and, oh, it looks like a setback? It, it was no more a setback than three days in the grave were a setback for Jesus. And the same thing could be said of other kinds of developments. Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. So he reigns over the nations. Psalm 66, 7. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So he's keeping watch on the nations. Nothing is happening in a, in a corner to God. He's not tending to an election in Canada or a decision about whether... Canada becomes two nations. He's not tending to that and then, oh, I let something slip in South Africa. He's watching over all of them. God is omnipresent and omniscient. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou wilt judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. That's a remarkable statement. Especially when you realize how godless many of the nations are and how many choices they make, which are anti-God choices and anti-gospel choices. He guides the nations on the earth. And this is said in a context back then where only one nation was anything approximating a godly nation. And this is plural here. It's not just Israel that he guides, it's the nations of the earth, Edom and Moab and Assyria and Egypt and Ethiopia and the nations of the north. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Now I put that in here as a kind of summary of, goodness, How many of you are reading Ezekiel in your devotions these days? Raise your hand. Okay, not as many as I thought. I thought more people, maybe maybe you're behind. (laughs) I thought more people were reading reading the discipleship journal. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. You can read anywhere you want. Um, But if if you're reading in Ezekiel right now, or really anywhere in the prophets, uh, just circle in your mind, if not with a pencil, all the I will when God is the I. I, I looked up the I, I will bring on my computer Bible program today. 
I will bring. There were about 60 or maybe there were 90 in the Bible, I think. And I just jumped from one to the other. I will bring a nation here. I will bring my people. I will bring devastation. I will bring triumph. I will bring. I, I, I. Don't, you know, sometimes you read, you read uh, a, a difficult book like Ezekiel with its strange visions and, and you scratch your head and you say, I can't get this book. Half of this book is a closed book to me. I don't understand. No, that's okay. It is to most people. You've got to study hard and poke around in commentaries and look up words in dictionaries and try to get some background, which you mainly don't have time to do. But, you know, you, you shouldn't miss the forest for the trees when you read a book like Ezekiel. The, the, the forest is God is amazingly at work in judgment and salvation. And let the, the supremacy and the dominance of the providence of God have an effect on you. I'll show you before we're done some typical biblical ways of telling history, talking history that are so different. But I put this verse in here as a kind of summary of all those dozens and dozens, I'm tempted to say hundreds and hundreds, of battles in Old Testament history where God plainly says, I did it. I did it. I gave them into your hand. And the reason is because Proverbs, which is a, a book speaking about general wisdom, says, in all battles the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So if we go to war here or we go to war there, or if there's a battle here or a battle there, it is fitting that there be precautions and preparations made. But in the end, God decides who wins. God decides who wins. Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. He's talking about judges and rulers. Isaiah is one of those books that attempts to give you a feel for the transcendent majesty of God over this earth. Now, I, I want you to feel right now that you're not going to get this message from the place where you get most of your input in this world. And it is the most important message. You never hear this on television. Never does the news say, God blew the Prime Minister of Israel away. They won't say it. They won't say it. Ever. That God would, and he's gone. And I don't say that out of any particular political standpoint. Because this week, Kale Potasan's 35-year-old son died in his sleep. And God went, 
and blew him away. And I'll say that about every death in this church and every political ruler who dies. And the fact that God establishes Yitzhak Rabin for a season, for his purposes, and then removes him, we need to know because that is a massive truth. And nobody else can tell you that but the Bible. Ezekiel, all the trees of the field. This is now coming right out of a parable or an allegory in Ezekiel where a high tree is pictured as a proud ruler. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree and I exalt the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make dry the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will perform it. Those are amazing and glorious statements that the high he makes low and the low he makes high and the dry he can make uh, moist and green and the, and the uh, green he can make I said that wrong. He dries up. The green he can make dry and the dry he can cause to flourish. So God can look on a situation, America or England or Germany. He can look at Europe right now, which is a dry tree. I was talking to a missionary in Lincoln on a Sunday after I preached on suffering as a means of world evangelization and a 36-year veteran missionary who spent... Most of those years in Ecuador, I bet you'd know him, Steve. I can't remember his name. Um, and then he said, when he retired, he and his wife said, send us to Spain in our retirement for a few years. We'd like to see what God is doing there and where a lot of these Spanish-speaking people originated. And he spent two years there, and he said, head is a dry tree. 2,000 years of Roman Catholicism. Maybe 50,000 people who would think of themselves as born again. Half of those is, are gypsies because there's amazing people movement among gypsies in Europe. So in a land like Spain, the whole of Spain, maybe 25,000 evangelical believers. That's a dry tree. Now the way to think about that is not, well, I guess, I guess that's the way it'll be till Jesus comes or I guess that God's done with Spain or something like that. The way to think about things like that is God can make a dry tree flourish. Now, I know he's talking about rulers here. He can raise up rulers and make them prosper, and he can take down rulers. But the same principle, the, the biblical principle that God is in the business of reversing things to get people to know, I am the Lord. Now, there's another one. You know how many times this occurs in Ezekiel? I looked that up. It's uh, 70 something. I can't remember. 60 to 90. It's, it's a lot. You read it and it's over and over again. They'll know that I'm the Lord. They'll know that I'm the Lord. And I wonder, well, what in the world does that mean? Because that's clearly God's motivation all through Ezekiel. He does everything he does, both in judgment and in salvation, that people would know that he's the Lord. But you see, whenever you see all caps in your Bible, it's the word... Uh, Yahweh 
It's the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, Yahweh, translated Jehovah in some places. We don't know just how to say it. The Jews never did say it. They said Adonai instead because they didn't want to take the name of Yahweh or whatever this pronunciation should be in vain. But this is the name of God in the Old Testament. It occurs about 2,600 times in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's the name that God said to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Who should we say sent us? And he says, tell them, I am sent you. And that's the verb be, and this is, this is built on the verb be. The verb be in Hebrew is haya. And this, this name is built on that. So here's my interpretation of that they might know that I am Yahweh. I think he means, there's no verb in those sentences either, by the way. It's just that they might know I, Yahweh. I think he means that they might know that I am the one who is, the absolute one who does all these things. The sheer isness of God is not known in the world. This made me feel very, very glad that we have a mission statement now that says we exist as a church to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. Now that's a very broad and big uh, mission statement. It's, it doesn't get down to the specifics of the gospel yet. That's on page two. But our mission statement is that, that we could spread a passion for the supremacy of God. And when I read a book like Ezekiel with its 60 to 80, that they might know that I, Yahweh, that they might know that I, Yahweh, I am the one who is, I am the one who is absolute. I had no beginning, I had no ending, I am not in process. Nobody made me the way I am. I am absolutely over all things and I take and I give and I dry and I moisten and I do all things because I am God. God wants to be known that way in the world and he isn't known that way in America. Certainly not outside the church and in large measure not inside the church. And so we should be thankful when we read the book of Ezekiel that God has given the master planning team a statement like that. Daniel. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to God, and it is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Daniel is at a time in history when mega changes are in the offering for the people of Israel and nations are rising, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, other nations are on the way. And as he is given to see the big picture, he says God reigns over all of this. He removes kings. He's going to take Nebuchadnezzar out of the way. He's going to take Artaxerxes out of the way. He's going to take Cyrus out of the way. He's going to take Darius out of the way. He's going to put up the Seleucids. He's going to put some Caesar that will do a thing and set up things for the Messiah to come. God is totally reigning here. He establishes kings. And this phrase here changes times and epochs. <laughs> it's, you know, if you live long enough, and those of you who are getting old now are the ones who have the authoritative word to say about this, if you go back 
and try to remember what it was like in the 40s and then the 50s and then the 60s and then the 70s and then the 80s and now the 90s. You know times change. There's ethos changes, moods change, openness changes. There's just a different kind of thing in the world that governs so much that you can't quite get your hand on what it is in our day. And Daniel says, God, God's doing that. God's got that under control. God knows why country western music is the most popular music in America. There's a purpose for that. I read, a, I read a, an essay by a guy in Nashville who had done a lot of thinking about why Nashville exists uh, as the capital of a lot of things. And uh, he, he had some amazing ideas. I can't tell you what they all are of why God has ordained country western music to take America. Just take it. It's over for every other music just about, you know. The president himself says that's his music. So you, 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 de you decide. You think that through. Acts 17.26, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries. He determined their appointed times. How long did he give the USSR? Seventy-one or two years? And the boundaries of their habitation, the space and the time limitations of nations, God is reigning. How long will he give America? No guarantees whatsoever. Now, that's enough for generalities. Let's, let's do some specifics from the Old Testament. 1 Kings 11, 14. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was the royal line of Edom. Verse 23. God also raised up another adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. Now the point here is, as Solomon's reign became embattled, and many adversaries came against him, like Hadad and Rezon. The writer of 1 Kings wants you to know where they come from. The Lord raised up and raised up. Now, how did he do that? How does God so work that a person named Hadad becomes an enemy of the Lord's anointed. How does that happen? Well, I don't know for sure. don't know how it all works. But he does it. And let's get that fixed in our minds because we're going to see a lot of that. God has the right and the authority as the creator of the universe in this world to so work. And you can leave it, you can leave it unexplained. You don't have to explain it in detail. He so works that this happens that Hadad and Rezon become adversaries of King Solomon. Jeroboam, one of the worst kings of, of Israel, go say to Jeroboam, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, all right? I exalted you. God, God put him up. From among the people and made you leader over my people. I made you leader over my people. And tore the kingdom away from the house of David. So God ripped the kingdom away from the uh, southern tribes and, and uh, gave, split the kingdom and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. So God's going to do this. Calamity, meaning all kinds of opposition, death. God's doing it. God is bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. And I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person. God's going to cut them off, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. So as you looked at the intrigue around the house of Jeroboam and saw him coming down, if you had the eyes of faith, you would see the hand of God. Lamentations 3. We read Lamentations not too long ago, and it, let me say a word about Lamentations to, to encourage you. Lamentations is a, is a bleak book in that it describes the abject terror and horror of Jerusalem under siege and children are being boiled and eaten by their starving parents. It's a book that is simply full of terror. Terror, terror on every hand. Except that in the middle of it, and I think very strategically positioned by the inspired writer Jeremiah, is a word of incredible hope about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never, even when people are boiling their children. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning in Jerusalem. I mean, it's the position of those verses that blow us away. The truth of them in themselves is dumbfounding. That God's mercies are new every morning of our lives to meet every crisis. But the position of those verses in the middle of this horrible book is what should cause us to wonder. How can he say that? The other thing that's encouraging about this book, a couple of other things, let me mention two. These words, this is in that same chapter, just a little later in chapter 3, 37 to 38. Those verses I just quoted were 3, 22 to 23. Who is there who speaks or commands and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Now in this book, that is, those are fighting words. Many people, I, I heard a testimony just the other day of a professor in this city who said this vision of God is grotesque and blasphemous. 
Who, who is there who speaks or commands? This is, this is referring to the commanders who came against Jerusalem and devastated it. Who is there who commanded? What corporal or general or colonel says, Charge! And it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. And the answer is, nobody. Nobody speaks and has it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and ill go forth? Another way to translate those would be uh, benefit and calamity. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both of those go forth? So Jeremiah, though he wept rivers of tears for his people, as we ought to do for all sin and pain in the world. See, this is not a contradiction. You don't, you don't come to the conclusion that God rules the tragedies of the world and then say, oh, well, they're all God's will, so we'll just say praise God anyhow. Not if you, not if you look at the way the biblical spokesman responded, and were commanded to respond. God commands them to weep. Jeremiah wept, and yet he couldn't bring himself to say God took a vacation during Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Babylon. He could not bring himself to say that Yahweh, the maker of the universe, fell asleep. Or... Uh, was working on something in China at the time or any other thing that you might think of that would distract the sovereign God from managing affairs in Israel and in the apple of his eye. God had predicted this judgment for centuries and threatened it to come to pass. And he brought it to pass. Here's the last thing I want to say about lamentations, just to set you to thinking. I wrote about... 13 years ago, a little one-page article for the Standard on Lamentations. Because for the first time, I hadn't realized this, I was, I was making my way through it slowly in Hebrew. I'm not very good in Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew without a lot of help. But if I get the help, I can plod along. And I realized that Lamentations is an acrostic. That all the paragraphs of lamentations begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, I don't have the specifics to give you, but if you want to read it, you can probably just get a study Bible and look in your footnotes and they'll tell you what I'm saying. Now, here's the implication of that. Here you have the most painful book in the Bible. That is, the book that is most fraught with emotion, most rending of heart, the book where it feels like if you should ever just pour out your heart uninhibited by anything, it would be here when he takes all that emotion and all that pain and forces it into the narrow channel of an acrostic and says, 
Olive. What of my pain can I put under olive? Bet. What can I put under bet? Gimel. What can I put under gimel? Dalet. What can I put under Dalet? A, B, C, D. And he starts the paragraph with that word, beginning with that letter. Isn't that an amazing thing that, that there, are, there are reasons in our lives after we have wept our eyes out long enough to begin to put our pain into form. This is where hymns come from. You read hymns, sanctify to us our deepest distress, like a river glorious. Or uh, so many, so many hymns are born of pain. And you wonder, how did the author take the hours necessary to come up with a rhyme scheme that isn't hokey and with a rhythm that doesn't sound da 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 And it's rich when there's so much pain in it. And the answer is, time elapses, the heaving gives way to breathing, the tears dry up behind the eyes, and yet the pain is there to be dealt with. And one way to deal with it is to capture it in the form and give it to the world, as what, as what Jeremiah did in Lamentations. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it. I will destroy it, says the Lord, from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. There's a measure. There's a, there's a restraint. God doesn't give way to the enemy. This is, when he says, I will destroy it, he means uh, the Assyrians are coming. I'm going to use the Assyrians. I'm going to use Cyrus as my rod. And yet, they are not so out of my control that I cannot keep it from being totally destroyed. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? You see that in the Bible repeatedly. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, and he shall take it. I am about to give this city. So there were 10,000 little pieces that fit into that plan and schemes of the Babylonians. But when all is said and done, God says, I did it. Ezekiel 26.3 Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Now we're not in Israel, we're in Tyre. And I will bring up many nations against you. I will bring up many nations. So God has the authority to go to this nation and somehow stir them up to come against Tyre and this nation and this nation and bring them all against Tyre. Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the earth? This is the kind of attitude God will not truck. 
Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You read that numerous times. I remember years ago, I remember reading through, I think I was still in college, and I was reading the prophets, and I said, now what can I look for in the prophets? Because I, there's so much I don't understand. What do I understand? And I decided I would look for all the reasons. I would always circle the reasons that judgment is coming. And it's amazing how many times pride, the, the lifting up of a nation and the boasting of a ruler is the reason. Isaiah 45, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Now here is a pagan ruler. And God calls him my anointed. This guy does not know God in a saving way. Whom, have, whom I have taken by the right hand. I, I took him. God took Cyrus by the right hand. He's going to do his judgment against Israel with him. To subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter. This is God going before Cyrus. And make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. You have not known me. He's doing all of this incognito. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. This is what, what God wants to be known in America. This is the mission of our church. Again. Yeah, it can. I think that's, that's the case. Isaiah is, is, is predicting what is going to happen. I mean, at least if you take the chronologies... Well, I, you say from secular history, there are no secular history testimonies to the existence of Isaiah that I know of. So I guess the answer to your question is no. I, I, I jumped the gun there when I thought, can it be verified? I was thinking, if you take the chronology of the Bible with Cyrus and Isaiah, Cyrus is out in front. This is prediction. This is prophetic prediction. This is why a lot of people date this half of Isaiah as late because they divide it in half at chapter 40 and call the one half Deutero-Isaiah, second half, and date it 200 years later so that you don't have to reckon with the fact that Cyrus, who lived 200 years later, was named 200 years earlier. I mean, there are other linguistic reasons that are used as an argument too, and there are evangelicals who, who, who think this. I haven't been persuaded that... Isaiah is written by Isaiah and then a person 200 years later and then joined together and put under the name of Isaiah. And my main argument for, for lay people who can't go back and read Hebrew and all that is to go to the New Testament and look up 
the places where Isaiah is quoted by Jesus, and uh, he's quoted by Jesus in John 12, and the quotation is from Deutero, the second half of Isaiah, and it said, Isaiah the prophet said. So you've got a mega moral problem in the life of Jesus, I think, if you say, well, Isaiah didn't say it. The person who lived 200 years later said it, and then it got united to Isaiah's prophecy, and now he's called Isaiah, but it really was another person, and Jesus was just going along with the way others thought. But close parenthesis on that. That men may know from the rising of the, the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity. That's the same thing we saw from Lamentations 3. I am the Lord who does all these things. Um, we're almost done. This is the last text on, on this unit before we look at some particular stories. Here's the end of history in Revelation. We won't go into the details of who the beast is and all of that. Revelation is another one of those books where you scratch your head and you're not sure what everything refers to. And I, I think it's a little bit dangerous to try to want to know what everything refers to in precision because every generation has assigned these people to somebody different. And I have no confidence that the people who definitely say the beast is this, you know, is it Napoleon, or is it Mussolini, or is it Hitler, or is it Reagan, or the Pope, uh, have, have, know what they're talking about. It's a, it's, a, it's a guess. But what you can learn from Revelation is that God reigns and will bring this history to a stunning climax of victory for the gospel. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings. Sometimes the interpretation is given for us. Who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. One hour, that's all God gives them. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. So you get these ten kings that are going to rise up and then give their power to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb. And the lamb will overcome them. Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called, those who are with uh, the Lord of Lords, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, probably Rome, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. And here comes the amazing verse. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Whose heart? Whose heart? beast and the ten horns. So, 
Whether we can identify at this juncture in history who this final Antichrist figure is going to be or was in a historical sense and is yet to be, one thing we know, he's on a leash and it's very tight. When he acts, God is putting it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast I'm sorry, I should have restricted this, I suppose, to the, ten, to the ten horns. And he gives over to the beast until the words of God should be, till the words of God should be fulfilled. Now, you don't have to be able to explain how so much evil can be in the control of God here, but if you're going to believe Scripture, think you need to believe it. God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and giving their kingdom to the beast. This is evil. We're talking evil here. And God is in control of it. And yet, in such a way that they, these kings, are accountable for it and will be judged justly. If you see things like that in the scripture, you don't jump to conclusions very quickly when somebody finds uh, an act in scripture and says, aha, see that act? That must mean that God doesn't have control over human will because it suggests this or that. The temple was rebuilt after the exile, but I tell that story in Future Grace if you want to read about it. Let's go to the birth of Jesus. This, this has, for years and years, amazed me, such that I wrote an Advent poem about it years ago. I'll read it to you here in a minute. It's a shorter one. It's not one of the long ones because it's old. They get longer as time goes by. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem as a fulfillment of prophecy. Micah 5.2 As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. All right. Now, here we are about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And the prophet says that Bethlehem will be the place uh, from which, from you, Bethlehem, will go forth from me a ruler in Israel, the Messiah. So God has committed himself to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is going to be the place. Okay? So why does he choose a virgin in Nazareth? This complicates matters. Why not a virgin in Bethlehem, where the house of David is, mainly? Here's, here's the story. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar. In, he lives in Rome. 
and he doesn't know anything about virgins in Nazareth. He doesn't know anything about what he's doing here. Most rulers do not know what they're doing. <laughs> they are doing things that God wants done and they don't have a clue. And that's true with much of your life. God is wonderfully causing you to do things that, that in a year or two or five, you will see the point of them. So he's making a decree that a census be taken in all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and all were proceeding to register for the census everyone in his own city. So the stipulation now of this decree is not that you can just go down to City Hall in Nazareth and sign up. You've got to go to your own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, which is where Bethlehem is, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. Now that was necessary for fulfillment of prophecy as well. That's not my point here, but we could make a point out of that. He, he chose a husband for this particular virgin who happened to be of the right lineage. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now that was convenient because had she had, like my wife, about Noel averaged on every one of our boys 10 days to three weeks late. Well, there goes prophecy right out the window. See? Micah's prophecy aborts if she doesn't give birth on time, namely while they're there. So God's got to take care of that little detail also. So he's managing details in Rome and he's managing details in the womb to fulfill his prophecy that this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, that's very roundabout. I mean, far simpler would have been to simply, for God to say, all right, I've got a prophecy, I've given my word, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, the fullness of time is at hand, I will go down and choose a virgin. Of course, God has been preparing this virgin from before the foundation of the world so that her heart is right, but let's just say he's looking around and he could have done that for, for uh, um, Rebecca down there in Bethlehem. And he could have arranged for a man named Isaac to, 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 to marry or get engaged to her in Bethlehem. And then, and then an angel comes and says, you're going to have a baby and you'll call his name Jesus and he'll be the ruler of his people and stay right there by all means because I'm going to fulfill my... I mean, far simpler. But God, I think, with a twinkle in his eye, chooses Nazareth. And then he says, now this should be interesting. How shall I do this? How about a global census? That would be a good way to demonstrate my power. And so he, he goes to Rome and he says, however he does it, to Caesar Augustus, 
make a census and have it do these stipulations and we'll get Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem so that the prophecy can be fulfilled. But now the question still remains. Why Nazareth? Matthew 2.23 gives a clue. When they're deciding where to live, they go back to Nazareth after the other events that come to pass to fulfill some other prophecies like going down into Egypt. And they came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, he should be called a Nazarene. God had other prophecies in mind when he chose a girl in Nazareth to have a baby in Bethlehem. Now, I'd love to take time with you to talk about where in the Old Testament this is found. That sentence is not in the Old Testament. He shall be called a Nazarene. There are two, I think, very good explanations for why this is a fulfillment of prophecy, but I don't want to go into that. I just want to close by reading you this poem. And there might be a, a moment just to end on a missions note. Yes, I, I think there will be. We'll close on an encouraging note about missions since we're sort of still in missions week. But this is, this is one of my shorter uh, Advent poems from, from, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. Why did he choose a northern maid from Nazareth who had to trade her Galilee for Judah just to get Messiah where he must be born? A strange and roundabout procedure for a God, no doubt, who values his efficiency and rules the world from sea to sea. Well, half the girls in town would stem from David's line, and carpenters aplenty there could bear the slurs and gossip on a virgin got with child who blushed and said she'd not once kissed her man this whole year past. Why not? Because God's power is vast, and in one little virgin birth, his sovereign joy and mighty mirth in saving us from evil bent could never, never rest content. Instead, he turned and set his sight to spangle Rome with, his, with all his might and took a girl from Galilee to magnify his sovereignty and made the Roman king conspire with God to serve a purpose higher than he or any in the realm could see, a stroke to overwhelm a few with faith and cause their heart to know the truth, at least in part, that though God loves efficiency and rules the world from sea to sea, he does not go from here to there by shortest routes to save his fare. He'd rather start in Galilee then pass a law in Rome, you see, to get the child down south at length and magnify his sovereign strength. God rules the flukes of history to see that Micah's prophecy comes true. Why did he choose a maid from Nazareth? Perhaps she prayed that endless mercy might abound and take the longer way around. I really, I really don't think God loves efficiency. I really think that God, I'm tempted to say, never goes from point A to point B on a straight line in your life and mine. Never. 
Maybe there are exceptions. But after 49 years of watching God lead this person, and after reading the Bible, I'm tempted to conclude God never goes on a straight line from point A to B. It's always through the detour of this, that, that, back, up, round. Where is B? Boom, you arrive at B 10 years later than you had planned. He said, what was all that about? And, and it's about wisdom. It's about the wisdom of God who is not nearly as much in a hurry as you are to get your job done, to get your family fixed, to get the world evangelized. God has his purposes and his timings that are so different than ours. Let me close with a story from this book right here um, called Countdown, uh, Catch the Vision 2000. And this is to show you why you who care about missions, as I hope you all do, should be encouraged. With one minute. This is, this is a story um, called the Uzbek-Korean Connection. And I want you to see how um, God moves nations around to get the gospel to where he wants it to be. Thousands of Koreans fled what is now North Korea in the 1930s as the Japanese invaded. Many of these settled around Vladivostok. Now, I had to get out my encyclopedia today to see where Vladivostok was. Vladivostok is, is right there next to Japan on the far eastern uh, little lip of, the, of what was the USSR, Russia. So they crossed over that little sea of, of Japan and thousands of them moved from Japan over to uh, Vladivostok, Russia in the 1930s. When Stalin, Joseph Stalin, in the late 30s and early 40s began developing Vladivostok as a weapons manufacturing center, he considered the Koreans a security risk. So he relocated them in five areas around the Soviet Union. One of those areas was Tashkent, hub of the staunchly Muslim people called the Uzbeks, where Oscar and Kathy are going to go next year, Lord willing. Twenty million strong, the Uzbeks had for hundreds of years violently resisted any Western efforts to introduce Christianity. But God has another way to do it. As the Koreans settled around Tashkent, moved by missionary Joseph Stalin, missionary strategist Joseph Stalin, unbeknownst to him, as the Koreans settled around Tashkent, the Uzbeks welcomed their industry and kindness. Within a few decades, now notice, just a little blip on God's screen, but decades feels like a long time, right? Within a few decades, lost my place. The Koreans had, were included in nearly every facet of Uzbek cultural life. <clears throat> As usual, in God's orchestration of global events, he had planted within the relocated Koreans strong pockets of believers. Little did Stalin suspect that these Koreans would not only begin enjoying a wildfire revival among their own people, 
they would also begin bringing their Muslim, Uzbek, and Kazakh friends to Christ. The first public sign of Korean revival and its breakthrough effects on the Uzbeks and Kazakhs came June 2, 1990, when in the first open-air Christian meeting in the history of Soviet Central Asia, a young Korean from America, now add this in, somehow a Korean moved to America, he's a second-generation Korean now, called of God to go preach to Koreans in and around Tashkent in Uzbekistan in 1990. So God was getting that person into position decades before this happened too. A young Korean from America preached to a swelling crowd in the streets, streets of Alma-Ata, capital of Kazakhstan. The village elder had been one of the first in the crowd to confess to his fellow Muslims that, uh, as the kind, trustworthy Koreans were saying, Isa, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Joseph Stalin, imagine, who could have thought Later you learn a little more about God's odd orchestration of his emissaries among the dispossessed North Koreans. One million Koreans in northern China in what Koreans call the Kirim Song area are experiencing revival. About 100,000 are now believers. That's a second story altogether separate. But be encouraged that as time goes by and it looks like the land is fallow, and little is being sown and little is being harvested, God is at work in ways that you would never imagine. This really, brothers and sisters, is the only thing that keeps me going in many times of ministry because we, don't, we have not seen in my 15 years here nearly the kind of harvesting that I would like to see. I haven't seen it in my life. And if we're to see 2,000 by 2,000 sent and harvested, it's going to have to look dramatically different than the last five years and yet, I, I believe that what God is doing, has done at Bethlehem, is a process that will cause us in five years, when God does it, to look back and say, so that's what those awful years of transition were in 93 and 94 and 95, when everything seemed to be in flux and up for grabs and we couldn't quite get our fingers on who we were going to be in worship and how we were going to do discipleship. So that's what it was for. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give faith to your children at Bethlehem and wherever we are, that you're always doing more than we see. And at the national level, you are always orchestrating things for the glory of your great son's name. Make us faithful. Make us ready to bear witness at every point so that we are never left out of the work that you are doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.